to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, April 20th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, April 24th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. What's up, ladies? Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. (laughs) I am in the United States for a few weeks. That's awesome. How's it feel to be home? Oh, you know, it's like it's 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 so strange and also not strange at all, you know, because yeah. I've spent so much of my life here in okay. New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. But, we need um, to play the Welcome Back Cotter theme. I loved that <laughs> show as a kid. So that show was feel cool. free. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome back to that same. Yeah. Old <laughs> Me and Jasmine have been singing on the air. We sang a little bit last week. Yeah. I tried to sing with Emily one week and you got... I can't sing. It's not that I don't sing. I cannot sing. So okay. you're so, welcome. You're welcome, listeners. <laughs> well, maybe, you can, maybe you can rap or something, Emily. Like, I, I also can't do that. I have, <laughs> absolutely not. I was really into the Beastie Boys, so I can tell you for a fact that I cannot rap. Okay. Yeah, but thank you for believing in me. That's all right, girl. Oh, all right. Jasmine, how's it feeling in New York? What's going on over there? Oh, that's right. It's still just me in the city because you're in Jersey. It's a beautiful day on the day we're recording. It's my good friend's birthday. So happy birthday, Alyssa. Awesome. Happy hey. birthday. It's awesome over here in California. Beautiful, 68 degrees, and uh, yeah, nice little breeze. Mm, so, love it. Let's get into it. So, today for local news, uh, we have a story about the accused NYC subway shooter being denied of bond. On national news, we'll be talking about the rise in deaths for homeless people in America. Our world news story is about unequal acceptance of refugees in the U.S. And for good news, we have an encouraging climate story about us staying below two degrees Celsius. So we're going to kick off today's episode with our local story. Jasmine, you're up. All right. So this is a little bit um, delayed because this um, the subway shooting happened in New York uh, last week. Um, the title of this article is Accused Subway Shooter Denied Bond After Terrifying the Entire City. It was written for the Daily Beast by Pilar Melendez. Lawyers for Frank James, the ranting 62-year-old accused of carrying out a mass shooting on the New York City subway, then calling authorities on himself a day later after seeing his photo on the news, asked for a psychiatric evaluation to be undertaken after he was denied bond on Thursday. James is facing several charges, including terrorism against a mass transit system, for allegedly letting off two smoke bombs, then opening fire inside a subway car as it pulled into the station during rush hour on Tuesday morning, injuring at least two dozen people. The 62-year-old with ties to Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Wisconsin faces life in prison if convicted. During his initial court appearance Thursday, During his initial court appearance on Thursday, Brooklyn federal prosecutors argued that James should be held without bail because he is a flight risk and committed an entirely premeditated attack. Prosecutors noted that James caused terror among the victims and across the entire city, and he terrifyingly opened fire during the morning commute. When he terrifyingly opened fire during the morning commute. 
he is a serious risk of danger to the community, the prosecutor added. James's attorney, Maya Eisner Grinberg, with the Federal Defenders of New York, waived his right to a preliminary hearing, but asked for James to receive a psychiatric and medical evaluation and to receive his magnesium pills for his leg cramps while in custody. Magistrate Judge Roanne L. Mann said she would rule on the request later Thursday. We are still learning about what happened on that train, and we caution against a rush to judgment, Eisner Grinberg told reporters outside the courthouse. She confirmed reports that James called Crime Stoppers himself after seeing a photo of himself on the news. Prosecutors also cited James's unhinged social media history, which included YouTube videos threatening violence and ranting about his mental health issues. As the Daily Beast previously reported, James went on lengthy, lengthy diatribes on race, politics, and gun violence, including his desire to kill people and his disdain for Black people, Jews, his family, and New York City Mayor Eric Adams. In a detention memo, prosecutors allege James picked up a U-Haul in Philadelphia stocked with weapons and a propane tank before driving to New York in the early hours of April the 12th. Fellow subway commuters told authorities James, who was wearing construction gear, donned a gas mask and was mumbling to himself as he got on the crowded end train in South Brooklyn. We have witnesses on the train who said he was sitting in the back corner of the second car and he popped the smoke grenade. NYPD Chief of Detectives James Essig said on Wednesday, and we have one witness who says, what, and we have one witness who says, what did you do? He goes, oops, and then he pops it, then brandishes the firearm and fires 33 times. As the smoke-filled train arrived at 36th Street, commuters could be seen running for their lives while others spilt out onto the ground with gunshot wounds. Meanwhile, James went into the R train sitting across the platform before exiting one stop away from the carnage, a, crim a criminal complaint states. James left behind a wealth of evidence, including a 9mm Glock, three extended capacity magazines, a backpack, a bag of fireworks and smoke canisters, a hatchet, a spray bottle of gasoline, and a credit card that he used to rent the U-Haul and a receipt for storage for a storage unit in Philadelphia. Inside a Philadelphia apartment he rented for 15 days last month, authorities allegedly found an empty magazine for a Glock handgun, a taser, a high-capacity rifle magazine, and a blue smoke canister, according to a criminal complaint. Prosecutors also alleged James had more weapons, including an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, in the storage unit. He was ultimately arrested on Wednesday afternoon in the East Village when he called Crime Stoppers from a McDonald's. He left before cops arrived, but three quote-unquote good Samaritans, one of whom appeared to be a 21-year-old camera installer named Zach, spotted him a couple of blocks away and flagged down the officers. Two law enforcement sources told the Daily Beast. Uh, so I picked that um, right up because I thought it was pretty comprehensive of what happened and we didn't speak about the shooting. But yeah, that's where we're at um, with this at the moment. Um, yeah, I, I think I mentioned this last week in the, in the recording I, I did, but, um, the news, the news got released like the same day that the Lieutenant governor in New York got, um, or resigned. And I, 
think got indicted, but um, it's just in, from what I've seen, it's been taking over the news cycle um, in a lot of ways, or at least, you know, for a while. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know he called himself in. Did you say that Jasmine? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I said. It's a lot of case that is very, very weird. Like it's real. Like, cause this man, I didn't watch the videos myself. Cause I personally don't, I don't like to consume that, but his YouTube was wild. Mm -hmm. Like he, like he's black himself. It wasn't mentioned in the article, Mm -hmm. but he was saying stuff where he was like, that black people should be like eliminated but then also saying that whites are racist he was talking about black women being sterilized and stuff like just any group you can think of yeah you had videos talking about like i hate them and like this and that like so very the the content was like extremely like disturbing Mm -hmm. Um, and i guess he had been putting these videos out for god knows how long that's that's really deep. I was so uh, just like sitting here in solidarity with you all while, you know, I was not there. Truth be told, when I used to live in New York, I used to think about the possibility of that happening. I, You know, just um, what would I do? You know, maybe it just it's me just being vigilant or just being aware. But I did I'll always actually like pray sometimes on the train that that never happened. So I was just sitting here thinking how uh, vulnerable you all must have felt and scared. What was it like, Jasmine, to be there during that? Um, well, I was like, I was on my way to work. So when I got on the subway, I knew something was wrong with the trains, but they weren't saying what was wrong with them, like from what I could see. Okay. It was just saying like these trains, like there's been an incident or some due to some incident, these trains are running this way, blah, blah, blah. So a different train than my normal train like pulled into the subway station. So I'm like, well, I guess as long as it's making those stops that I need, I'll just get on this. And I was already across the, like crossing the bridge. And some of my friends were messaging me about like, be careful. This is what happened. So I'm reading it while I'm on the subway. Like I didn't know what had happened or what was going on. And you know, the, that day was like a lot of people texting, calling people at work, like, are you okay? And um, yeah, I mean, and someone that I work with made a comment about like being so happy that they don't take the train. And I'm like, look, to be honest with you, as long as there's these weapons all around, this type of thing can go down anywhere, anytime, any place. Yep. It's, it's so I'm like, I see, you know, all the people that get killed, like in drunk driving or whatever, I'm like, thank God I don't have to drive. Or like you go to a mall, your place of worship, like anywhere. Exactly. Supermarket, school. You could just be walking down the street, mind your business and, you know, the wrong place, wrong time. And you just, you know, I will say, I think it's great how people stepped up for each other when it did happen. Mm -hmm. Like people who knew like medical stuff, like they stepped in mm-hmm. to help people that had been hurt. There was a guy who, you know, a pregnant woman had fallen down, like he shielded her, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I do think, you know, we as regular people have more power than we think we do sometimes, like when stuff like this happens to support each other. Yeah. But it's just, it's a horrible thing that happened. I, I have a lot of questions as to, what is going to come out ultimately about this. You know, when things like this happen, I'm always so, you know, fearful that it's just going to stimulate others 
to do the same thing because somebody yeah. was able to pull it off. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, not to be, you know, trying to invoke fear, but it's just, you know, really scary that when you really think about the trade, it's like, it's kind of a free for all. And it's hard to imagine what could be done to avoid that. Like I was thinking about that the other day. What did we do? Metal detectors or something? Like how, how could we make the train more safe? Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that Reese. And I, I, unfortunately, I think like as Jasmine was saying, I think that, you know, as long as there is a proliferation of guns in this country and, and the people in power refuse to do anything to limit that. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think restricting our, I don't think there's, you know, we can, we can put up as many, what we want to believe are safety barriers as possible and they're going to get through, you know, like there's yeah. still shootings in schools. Yeah. Um, absolutely. you know, even it, since Columbine, we have known for 20 something years that, you know, schools aren't a safe place really. And, and it still happens a lot, you know? Yeah. And like a, a lot of this, the first, the main thing that concerned me when this happened, like, I'm very glad that no one passed away yeah. Um, with this incident. But I'm like, it's it's always scary to me because when people are afraid, they're more likely to give up freedoms mm-hmm. and think that that's keeping them safe. So like you we already have, in my opinion, way too many damn cops on the subway, like harassing people, threatening people over like a fair that didn't stop this from happening. You know, like when yeah. Michelle Go was pushed onto the tracks and she kill she was killed unfortunately by that random person on the train. There were two cops on that platform when it happened and it didn't stop it. And then even like I know Adams is talking about putting in metal detectors and I'm like, what's gonna happen with that? You're gonna have a disproportionate amount of people getting stopped, getting roughed up or whatever for being suspicious because they have something else on them that tripped up the detector. You know, it's like, I just think it's probably going to lead to just more like profiling harassment over something that really is like a one in a million type of a thing. Like people think of New York as being dangerous and it can be, I'm not saying that it never is, but when you kind of look at the country as a whole or like the way it used to be, it's still a fairly safe place to live. But these types of things are so shocking. I think it kind of skews people's perception, you know, so. Yeah, I totally understand that. The issue is definitely systemic And we've talked a lot about this on the show that until there is any sort of changes made here, this, you know, we're all kind of um, subjugated to anything that happened at any time. So uh, definitely prayers up for those people who were affected by this, those people who were shot and caught up in all of that. Um, As far as this man not getting bond, I mean, I don't, I guess we should be following the rules of the system, but I don't see a reason for him to have bond at this point. yeah, I don't know. And he was saying, like, it seems like part of what prompted him, well, he this is still, like, the accused person who did it. Like, there were some disputes about, like, initially they were saying the person was 5'5", five, five, like, eyewitnesses. This man is, like, very tall and very large. So this person is still, like, the accused subway shooter. But he was making comments about, like, having been treated by like mental health professionals in New York city that he felt made him worse. 
it was just, it's very, very odd. So we'll put up links on our show pages for you to follow this story and read up on it because it's definitely going to be interesting, like getting to the bottom of all of this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Um, We're going to go ahead and take our first music break today. This track is really cool. It's called Bunzai View, and it's by a group called Potato Head People. We'll be right back. You know, you're right. It is quiet, 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 quiet. Listen. Listen. Roger here. That's sound. That's sound. I can't hear anything. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have Emily give us our national news. All righty. So this story comes from an April 18th New York Times article by Thomas Fuller um, titled A Rising Tally of Lonely Deaths on the Streets. More than ever, it has become deadly to be homeless in America especially for men in their 50s and 60s. Um, Just a heads up to listeners that this is a pretty intense story around the topic of death, so um, may not be for everyone. But the article explains, quote, "Uh, their bodies were found on public benches lying next to bike paths, crumpled under freeway overpasses and stranded on the sun-drenched beach. Across Los Angeles County last year, the unsheltered died in record numbers, an average of five homeless deaths a day, most in plain view of the world around them. 287 homeless people took their last breath on the sidewalk, 24 died in alleys, and 72 were found on the pavement, according to data from the county coroner. They were a small fraction of the thousands of homeless people across the country who die each year. It's like a wartime death toll in places where there is no war said Maria Raven, an emergency room doctor in San Francisco who co-wrote a study about homeless deaths. Uh, An epidemic of deaths on the streets of American cities has accelerated as the homeless population has aged and the cumulative toll of living and sleeping outdoors has shortened lives. The wider availability of fentanyl, a particularly fast-acting and dangerous drug, has been a major cause of the rising death toll, but many homeless people are dying young of treatable chronic illnesses like heart disease. More than ever, it has become deadly to be homeless in America, especially for men in their 50s and 60s, who typically make up the largest cohort of despair. 
In many cities, the number of homeless deaths doubled during the pandemic, a time when seeking medical care became more difficult, housing costs continued to rise, and when public health authorities were preoccupied with combating the coronavirus. Austin, Denver, Indianapolis, Nashville, and Salt Lake City are among the cities where officials and homeless advocates have said they have been alarmed by the rising number of deaths. But the crisis is most acute in California, where about one in four of the nation's 500,000 homeless people lives. The process of tallying homeless deaths is painstaking, involving the cross-referencing of homeless databases and death reports. But based on data from the handful of California's 58 counties that report homeless deaths, experts said that uh, 4,800 is a conservative estimate for last year. In Los Angeles County, the homeless population grew by 50% from 2015 to 2020. Homeless deaths have grown at a far faster rate, an increase of about 200% during the same time during the same period to nearly 2,000 deaths in the county last year. These are profoundly lonely deaths, said David Motorsback, who led the first public study of homeless deaths in Alameda County across the bay from San Francisco. In some cases, bodies are left undiscovered for hours. Others are unclaimed at the morgue despite efforts to reach family members. In San Francisco, where people uh, sleeping in cardboard boxes, tents, and other makeshift shelters are a common sight, the body of a homeless man who died on a traffic median last spring lay for more than 12 hours before being retrieved. Guy lay dead here and no one noticed, said a cardboard sign left at the scene. Those who sleep on the streets speak of the wear that it imposes on the body, of several untreated illnesses, and the loneliness of being surrounded by pedestrians who ignore you. A study by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health found that homeless people are 35 times as likely as the general population to die of a drug or alcohol overdose. They are also four times as likely to die of heart disease, 16 times as likely to die in a car crash, 14 times as likely to be murdered, and eight times as likely to die of suicide. Uh, Quote, California flush with cash from pandemic budget surpluses has poured record amounts of money into combating homelessness. Governor Gavin Newsom announced a $12 billion homelessness package last year that included funds to construct 42,000 new housing units. Los Angeles County voted overwhelmingly in 2017 to raise its sales tax and generate a a projected $3.5 billion over 10 years for homelessness programs. Since then, the county has housed 78,000 people. Yet county officials say they cannot keep up. While 207 homeless people find housing every day, 227 people become homeless daily, the county calculates. And once on the street, mental health, drug abuse, and general medical well-being can spiral out of control. Mr. Motorsback said he had been struck by how many homeless people were dying of diseases outside of hospitals or other clinical settings. To die of heart disease, liver disease, respiratory diseases on your own is pretty shocking, he said. A key function among the homeless population today is the graying of the destitute. Margot Kushel, a doctor specializing in homeless care, has tracked the rise of the average age of homeless people in the San Francisco Bay Area from their mid-30s three decades ago to their mid-50s today. But even that rise in age does not tell the full story of their vulnerability, she said. Homeless people in their 50s are showing geriatric symptoms, difficulty dressing and bathing, visual and hearing problems, urinary incontinence. Poverty is very wearing on the body, Dr. Koshal said. 50 is the new 75. 
A quarter of the homeless people she began studying nine years ago are now dead. The median age of death was 63, well below the average U.S. life expectancy of 77. Across California, homeless deaths are overwhelmingly among men, and especially black men, who are dying on the streets at rates far disproportionate to their share of the general population. In Los Angeles County, men make up 67% of the homeless population, but 83% of homeless deaths. In San Francisco, men in their 50s have the highest rates of overdose deaths among all deciles. Uh, Keith Humphreys, a Stanford psychologist, said the issue of death and despair among older men was underappreciated and understudied. He said society should ask the question, can we help men from dying so much? Uh, Quote, Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General, said he had seen a pattern of men being ill-equipped to handle triggers in life, such as illness and losing a job or a spouse. As men get older, they tend to be less good at building and maintaining relationships, he said. When people do not have a safety net to catch them in the form of community and strong, healthy relationships, it's much more likely they end up struggling with substance use disorders, with mental illness, and homelessness. And that is the story reported from the New York Times um, that I pulled um, quotes from. Uh, Yeah, very intense story, very sad. Um, Unfortunately, I wouldn't say altogether surprising. Um, I think from what we know about um, you know, how this, how the U.S. treats its, um, people without houses, houseless people, homeless people, um, the difficulty in getting medical care across the board. Um, it's just very sad to have it laid out like that, I think, all in one go. Yeah, I can imagine the rise in numbers considering how so many people have become homeless over the last three years. Um, and j- for various reasons, obviously, um, the pandemic definitely created a really serious situation, but it was serious way before that as well. Um, those are really tough numbers that you were giving as well. Um, and some insight into the struggles that houseless people face in this country. Yeah, I mean, I, when you were reading that, I, I don't know if you all um, saw it, but it reminded me of the story that um, came out about a woman who was found dead. Her name was Audrey Loomer on, on the subway in New York. And it kind of prompted people to, because her brother is someone that's like very well off and she had gone to him for help. It was just, you know, it was very sad that she had been found dead, but like the more people learned about her life, the more that it sort of gave this clear picture of how this is like a process, like people falling into being unhoused. Like it was someone who, you know, lived with their parent into adulthood. Their parent moved away, like I think moved to Florida or something and wasn't able to, she wasn't able to maintain the home like on her own. She couldn't, she wasn't like working a steady, stable type of a job and it just spiraled from there. And then, you know, eventually she ended her life by herself just on a subway bench. And it's... It's like what art, what the article that Emily was reading mentioned, like when you don't have a strong support system or if the support system you have is other people that are also struggling, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. And, and I thought 
the way that the 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 numbers are are gendered was really interesting because I think if I had to, if I would have had to guess if someone asked me you know if do you think that more women or more men die you know alone or like not alone just like from being homeless I would have guessed women just because I know how dangerous essentially I mean being a woman is period and and how being in vulnerable situations like that are um, so that was surprising and really interesting to me. And then the reasoning itself, I guess, did make a lot of sense to me. Like, um, I know a lot of men, period, um, who aren't homeless in general, but who really struggle to um, ask for help or to hold on to um, community and feel very, you know, and I, I, I can see how the way that society treat like tells men to deal with situations on your own if you can't solve this like you're a failure you know how it creates a situation where where men feel very lonely um and it's it's tough it's really sad I think it's sad and I think it also goes back to not only the way men are socialized but also as a society it's expected that mm-hmm. if you're raised female that you are taking on this like caretaker mm-hmm. role and mm-hmm. stepping in to fill those gaps for other mm-hmm. people so that happens a lot yeah. um in my I would say it's happened in my family to cer- to a certain extent it's like once mom goes or grandma goes or great grandma you see people just kind of unravel like they don't have that Mm -hmm. so you know it and it's unfortunate but even like as people age a lot of times the eyes that you're going to be somewhat taken well care of as you get older is do you have a daughter that's going to do it Mm -hmm. because if you don't it's I don't know you might be on your own you Mm -hmm. know so it it is interesting to see like how gen like these the way that we silo people and kind of train people in what it is to be man woman whatever like it has consequences mm-hmm. that and, hurt people yeah and our society isn't built like things are so lonely here in a way that they don't have to be like everything from raising a child is like it's that's between you and the kid right like this it's not a community effort it's not a group it's it's unless you're unless you have enough money it's just you and um, I think it's a very similar for the elderly, right? Like there are, there yeah. are communities where like the community knows it's their responsibility to make sure that this, you know, elderly person doesn't die alone and, and vulnerable, right? But like that's not, and that happens, the United States hasn't created situations like that. That happens so much more than we could ever imagine. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, people just really being alone in their homes. I remember I did this one project one time downtown Brooklyn during the Thanksgiving and we felt the community, the elderly community. And part of the project was people going out, taking food to them. There were so many people that came to this lunch that would have been alone, you know, during the holiday. And it just made me so much more conscious about people around me and how, you know, in New York City specifically, like what it's like to become elderly and how hard it is to get around. Um, Definitely can see how this happens to people. And it's, you know, I think we all can be a bit more mindful um, of the people around us as well. You know, what people may be going through, because it could be anybody at any time. For any yeah, people. there's also, I mentioned it before on the show, but there's um, a podcast that 99% Invisible made. They did a series about homelessness called According to Need. 
that was a very good um, deep dive into like how did we get to where we are now in the U.S. with um, the unhoused population being what it is and like how some of the, the systems that are in place to help unhoused people, how they fail, why they fail. Um, there's also, if you're in New York City, there's unfortunately a lot of police sweeps that they're doing of um, unhoused people's like communities in Manhattan specifically. Yeah, I heard about those sweeps happening and I was just like, and like truly, but it's like, okay, where are they going to go? While the gunman was on the loose, by the way, that shit was happening while that was going on. It's like, it's really, it's like, it's like, what decade is this? Like, is this the eighties? Like, you can't just like, if the people need to, like, they don't have a home or like a a house, right? Like the, the shelter system isn't, I, I was like, you know, is not a healthy, like sustainable long-term solution for anyone. Um, and it's like, so where are these people going to go? You can't just kick them out of a plate, you know, and take, you know, I don't know. And not have a solution. It's not. And like, I think, you know, we, we did talk a bit during this segment about like loneliness and Mm -hmm. gender things, which is all super important. But then there's also just the reality of like, it's hard to keep a roof over your head because the yeah. powers that be make it difficult. Like the yeah. rents yeah. are out of control. Absolutely. It's a man-made yeah. problem. Like there's yeah. enough space for everyone to live it's, indoors. It's completely exactly. manufactured and it's more expensive yeah. to put, to keep someone bouncing around shelters than it would be yeah. to house them. Yeah. It costs more to do those things, like to let buildings sit empty than to convert them into decent housing for people. So you mm-hmm. really have to be alert to, what is the messaging that's being put out there? How much money are people getting paid in overtime to brutalize people that have nothing? So if you are on Twitter, if you follow at sweep alert NYC, like they will let you know, like when sweeps are happening, they encourage people to show up so that you can, you know, take like documentation. There's also a website where you can donate money and um, make direct donations of goods and things that, people in the community need um, that are dealing with this. If you go to L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash S-W-E-E-P-A-L-E-R-T-N-Y-C, that's link dot, that's link tree slash sweep alert NYC um, for ways that you can support people locally dealing with homelessness right now because I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a support system and a family and everything, but, you know, especially as you get older, sometimes that layer of people that would be around, they're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. So if I you mean, have this runaway shit happening, well. Yeah. If you actually like read the stories of like, and don't just assume everyone on the street or like uh, that is homeless has, you know, um, a drug problem or mental health issues like it really could be almost anyone at any point like if you hit if you hit some bad luck a streak of bad luck and it could be you and that's why it's important that you know this we can't you know they're people <laughs> they need and deserve um help, help, all of it yeah act, you know they deserve help at the yep. end of the day so yeah and just briefly also like a lot of times like there are people that 
once you're in that situation, it mm -hmm. can then lead to your mental state deteriorating, or mm -hmm. it can then lead to you taking substances yeah. you wouldn't normally take. So sometimes it doesn't always go in the order people assume. Mm -hmm. It can be either one, but like if you're exposed to the elements all the time, then like, yeah, yeah. that's going to do something to your mental health. Yep. It's going to do something like you're going to want to do something to comfort yourself, you know, so. Very important story and good discussion, ladies. You guys have to keep it going, though. It's not just about what we talk about on the show is how we move things in our life. So. Uh, thank you for that story. We're going to go ahead and take our next music break. Uh, the next track is Inner City Blues, Make Me Wanna Holler by Marvin Gaye. We'll be right back. can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, this week for our world news story, I drew this information from an article on PBS.org, but I think it was originally in the Associated Press. Um, it's from April 1st, and the author is Patrick Orsagos. The title of the article is, In U.S.'s, in US's Welcome to Ukrainians, African Refugees See Racial Bias. Wilfred Taba doesn't begrudge the U.S. for swiftly granting humanitarian protections to Ukrainians escaping Russia's devastating invasion of their homeland. But the 27-year-old who fled Cameroon during its ongoing conflict can't help but wonder what would happen if the millions fleeing that Eastern Europe nation were of a different hue. As the U.S. prepares to welcome tens of thousands of Ukrainians fleeing war, the country continues to deport scores of African and Caribbean refugees back to unstable and violent homelands where they face rape, torture, arbitrary arrest, and other abuses. They do not care about a Black man, the Columbus, Ohio resident said, referring to U.S. politicians. The difference is really clear. They know what is happening over there, and they have decided to close their eyes and ears. Tabe's concerns echo protests against the swift expulsions of Haitian refugees crossing the border this summer without a chance to seek asylum, not to mention the frosty reception African and Middle Eastern refugees have faced in Western Europe compared with how those nations have enthusiastically embraced displaced Ukrainians. 
In March, when President Joe Biden made a series of announcements welcoming 100,000 Ukrainian refugees, granting temporary protected status to another 30,000 already in the U.S., and halting Ukrainian deportations, two Democratic lawmakers seized on the moment to call the similar humanitarian considerations for Haitians. There is every reason to extend the same level of compassion, U.S. Rep. Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts and Mondaire Jones of New York wrote to the administration, noting more than 20,000 Haitians have been deported despite continued instability after the assassination of Haiti's president and a powerful earthquake this summer. Cameroonian advocates have similarly ratcheted up their calls for humanitarian relief, protesting in front of Washington residents of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and the offices of leading members of Congress this month. Their calls come as hundreds of thousands of Cameroonians have been displaced in recent years by the country's civil war between its French-speaking government and English-speaking separatists, attacks by terrorist group Boko Haram and other regional conflicts. The advocacy group Human Rights Watch, in a February report, found many Cameroonians deported from the U.S. suffered persecution and human rights violation upon returning there. Tabe, who was a leading member of the Cameroonian American Council, an advocacy group organizing protests this month, said that's the fate he hopes to avoid. Hailing from the country's English-speaking Northwest, he said he was branded a separatist and apprehended by government because of his activism as a college student. Tabe said he managed to escape, as many Cameroonians have, by flying to Latin America, trekking overland to the U.S.-Mexico border and petitioning asylum in 2019. I will be held in prison, tortured, and even killed if I'm deported, he said. I'm very scared. As a human, my life matters too. The Department of Homeland Security, which oversees TPS and other humanitarian programs, declined to respond to the complaints of racism in American immigration policy. It also declined to say whether it was weighing granting TPS to Cameroonians or other African nationals, saying in a written statement only that it will continue to monitor conditions in various countries. The agency noted, however, that it has recently issued TPS designations for Haiti, for Haiti, Somalia, Sudan, and South Sudan, all African or Caribbean nations, as well as more than 75,000 Afghans living in the U.S. after the Taliban takeover of the Central Asian nation. Haitians are among the largest and longest tenured beneficiaries of TPS, with more than 40,000 currently on the status. Other TPS countries include Burma, Honduras, Nepal, Nicaragua, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen, and the majority of nearly 320,000 immigrants with temporary protected status hail from El Salvador. Lisa Pavricio, which helped launch Catholics Against Racism in Immigration, argues the program could easily help protect millions more refugees, danger, but has historically been underused and over-politicized. TPS, which provides a work permit and starves off deportation for up to 18 months, doesn't have limits for how many countries or people can be placed on it, said Pasario, who is an advocacy director for the Catholic, Catholic Legal Immigration Network. Yet former President Donald Trump and his border efforts to restrict immigration pared down TPS, allowing designations for Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea in West Africa to expire. Although programs like TPS provide critical protections to vulnerable refugees, they can also leave many in legal limbo for years without providing a pathway to citizenship, said Carly, Carla Morales, a 24-year-old from El Salvador who has been on TPS nearly her whole life. It's absurd. It's absurd to consider 20 years in this country temporary, the University of Massachusetts Boston's, Boston's nursing student said. We need validation that the work we put in is appreciated and that our lives have value. 
At least in the case of Ukraine, Biden appeared motivated to broader foreign policy goals in Europe, rather than racial bias, suggests Maria Cristina Garcia, a history professor at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, focused on refugees and immigrants. But Tom Wong, founding director of U.S. Immigration Policy Center at the University of California, said that racial disparities couldn't be clearer. The U.S. has responded without hesitation by extending humanitarian protections to predominantly white European refugees. So there's a little bit more to the article, but I think you guys get the gist of where we're going. Um, yeah, this is a long-standing problem in this country and across the world, obviously. Um, I do feel that um, what we're going to see with the influx of Uranian uh, Ukrainians coming to America by at all means, anybody I think seeking asylum anywhere should be permitted and with a route to get out of that situation. But I think this is a real issue. And it's really unfortunate that just last summer, we were watching U.S. immigration agents on horseback, whipping people and pushing them away from the border. And now this. Yeah, I mean, immigration in this country is truly like a travesty, um, like historically and, and right now. Um, and thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. I think that um, it's not I think it's easy f to ignore the issue when you uh, like as Americans, like who if or if you're an American who doesn't have to deal with immigration stuff yourself, and you don't have family that has to deal with it. It's easy to sort of like you know, brush it off as not your issue, but it is your issue um, as an American, especially. As a human being. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, human just, rights. Like, just like homelessness, uh, that mm -hmm. could be our situation at any time. And I think that, you know, it's so obvious. It's in our face. It's like, are we really on this at this time in life? You know, uh, the apparent racism that's just so rampant across the world. It's really sad and disheartening. We've been talking about uh, migrants. Last week, we talked about migrants on the show. I just feel really feel like the refugee community is so vast and various and displaced because of uh, racial politics and just a complete disregard for human life. It's really, yeah. Yeah, because like you even like in reporters like the way that they were talking about um ukrainians that were trying to get out like making statements about them being civilized christian all this other stuff and it's like it's one thing to say because it's probably factually correct that if they're going from one place to another place if the new place is known to be like has a lot of like issues with white supremacists like running things then clearly the people in the new place will probably be less hostile to immigrants from, uh, from to refugees from a place where they feel like they're culturally more similar. It's another thing to make it seem like it's worse or like it's a real problem only because the people it's happening to are white or like they seem more Western. Like it's really... You know, I remember like when there were black people who are in Ukraine, like they might be studying or, you know, studying abroad and things of that nature. And they were trying to get out and talking about the racism they were experiencing. There were people that were trying to imply that they were like Russian bots or whatever. It was really sick. And it's like, no, like 
there's a lot of different types of bigotry that are they exist wherever you go and like anti-blackness is one of those things like it's wherever you are like if you visibly stand out as a black person there's a high probability that you're going to face like disparate treatment from other people and it's it's really I don't I can't even imagine what it would feel like to be the one who you know you had to fight tooth and nail or like deal with people treating you like you're a nobody and then to see someone else who's in a similar situation be treated you know be welcome it would upset me as well you know even if you're happy that they're getting help like you can't help but to think like but it, when it was me and my family I was being talked about in a completely different way. And like, and you can see it in like the way some of these European politicians were talking about, you know, welcoming Ukrainians and then the way that they routinely talk about migrants from other places. It's very, it's hypocritical. It's very sad. Yeah. Just, you know, really tough. I know we need to move on to the good news, but I just want to bring up one really important point, you know, the amount of Haitians that have been made to return and face even worse situations than when they left. You know, they're still dealing with the assassination of their president, the results of the storm, that, you know, the continuous hurricane and shortage of food. Um, it's, it's an everyday, all day kind of never ending problem. And it's very sad that, you know, things, the inequities in this world are just on the front stage. I'm going to move on. We're going to move on. Emily, give us some good news, please. My pleasure. All right. So this story um, comes from an April 13th Wired article by Matt Simon titled, Some Kind of Good Climate News, Two Degrees is Doable. Humans could keep global warming below two degrees Celsius, new research shows, but only if countries actually stick to their pledges. The article explains, quote, for all the less than encouraging news about climate change, rapid sea level rise, the land itself transforming, serious trouble brewing under Antarctic glaciers, we've been getting plenty of hope. The price of renewable energy is crashing, for example, and we're moving toward a cleaner, electrified future faster than you may realize. That shift is clear in a darn near uplifting paper that publishes today in the journal Nature. Modeling by an international team of scientists shows that if nations uphold their recent climate pledges, including those made at COP26, uh, humanity may keep warming under two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the goal outlined in the Paris Agreement. It isn't under the 1.5 degree threshold we'd really want, uh, the agreement's more optimistic goal, but it's far from the extreme warming of three, four, or even five degrees as some scenarios projected prior to the agreement. And it will only happen if nations carry out their promises to quickly decarbonize their economies, which isn't guaranteed. Those very high emissions trajectories that people used to talk about don't look quite so likely today, says Christoph McGlade, head of the Energy Supply Unit at the International Energy Agency and a co-author of the new paper. It's a bit of good news because it shows that the world has made progress in terms of policy and technology over the past few years. Um, besides political movement, quote, several trends have been converging to make this progress possible. For one thing, the cost of solar and wind power, as well as lithium ion batteries to store electricity, uh, cratered by up to 85 percent. Uh, between 2010 and 2019, according to the most recent UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. 
it's really been very, very impressive and is one of the key reasons why we actually get this result in the paper, says McGlade. In many cases, it's cheaper to deploy a new wind farm or new solar or a new solar energy, or I'm sorry, or a new solar farm than to deploy a new coal-fired power plant. That's the case in many, many places around the world today. Also, those earlier scenarios predicting extreme warming were pieced together when the use of coal was skyrocketing. A decade ago, the world looked like it was in a pretty bad place, said Zeke Housefather, a climate research lead at Stripe and a co-author of a nature commentary uh, that accompanied the new study. Global coal use had almost doubled over the course of 10 years, primarily driven by China, and global emissions had increased by a third. And the idea that the 21st century might be the century of coal didn't seem that far-fetched. Instead, coal use peaked in 2013, Housefather adds, and has since then been regularly replaced with natural gas, which spews less carbon. More dramatically, coal is getting pushed out by ever-cheaper renewables, the ultimate driver of an eventual carbon-free economy. At the same time, demand for electric vehicles is soaring. No one expected we'd have an 8.5 times decline in cost in just 10 years for both solar panels and batteries, said Housefather. And so that's really accelerating the energy transition, even at the same time that we haven't seen quite the level of policy ambition, to put it mildly, that all of us had hoped for. There are, of course, some caveats to all of this good news, as there always is. Um, fluctuation in political leadership, for example, uh, Trump leaving the Paris uh, agreement, but then Biden rejoining. And there's also unpredictable, uh, unpredicted natural events could also throw off the scientific models, etc. But quote, in any case, humanity is running out of time to massively reduce emissions. Last summer's IPCC report found that we're on track to hit that 1.5 degree threshold about a decade earlier than expected by the earlier mid 2030s. It also noted that at 1.5 degrees, extreme heat waves will happen five times as often as they do now, but will happen 14 14 times as often if the world warms two degrees. Uh, Meanwhile, the frequency of once-in-a-decade droughts will double or triple at two degrees. So while that half a degree Celsius between 1.5 and 2 doesn't sound like much, each tiny fraction of a degree of warming will trigger massive changes, fiercer droughts, decreased crop yields, stronger storms, deepening the hole we have to dig ourselves out of. Every 0.1 degree matters so much. You need to deploy so many more electric cars, so much more solar power, says Haywan McJohn, senior economist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory who wasn't involved in the new paper. Every bit of decarbonization will bring down what will eventually be peak warming. At least on paper, we come down from 4 degrees to 3 degrees and now to 2 degrees, McJohn adds. I think this is an important moment that we should emphasize. McGlade's take on the new study is also optimistic, that there's a pathway to avoiding the worst outcomes predicted by earlier scenarios. He notes that in addition to national net zero commitments, industry is also getting involved. Thanks to the pledges that companies are also putting in place, when you put all of these things together, it can add up to a trajectory for emissions that is at least bringing us in the right direction, even if it is a long way away from where we want to be, says McGlade. For Housefather, it's a reminder to keep pushing to make sure that countries not only honor their pledges, but set even more ambitious goals as the price of renewables keeps plunging. There is good news here. The world is moving away from some of the darkest climate futures, says Housefather. And at the same time, we need to recognize that there's a huge gap between our ambition and our actions. Just because countries say they're going to get to net zero doesn't mean they're going to get to net zero. So it's our job to keep their feet to the fire. And that is my good news, guys.
Awesome. Thank you so much for that. It's important that we, you know, stay steady about being cognizant um, about our own contributions as well as those of others. And, you know, I mean, while we may not be able to make the powers that be understand the seriousness of our climate issues and just saving our future and our, our world, uh, we can do a little bit more every day to do that. Did that sound like a PSA? I, I wasn't trying to, but seriously. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. It is called Heaven Takes You Home, and it's by Swedish House Mafia featuring Connie Constance. Happy Sunday. Bye. Bye. to present four amazing bands at an outstanding local venue for an evening of rock and music. Join us on Friday, May 20th at 7.30 for a night with 7th Grade Girl Fight, Dirt Bikes, Barrette, and Castle Black, and none other than Ridgewood's own Bar Frida, 801 Seneca Avenue. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased at the venue. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, Please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.